For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. We spend a lot of our time going to the river mouth. That's what I call it, going to the river mouth, trying to see clearly and then address the causes of all of the drug harms that we see instead of zooming way in where we just say, you know, well, all we can do for overdoses is give people Narcan. Well, we can and we need to do that, but we need to go up the river and see why are all of those overdoses happening and how can we address those causal problems for it instead of just responding to it. So at End It For Good, we believe that the criminalization of drugs is actually creating a lot of the drug harms we see even when we get to a legally you know, regulated market and we end all of the harms of criminalizing these substances, we are still going to have people who become addicted to them. We have that now. We have it with alcohol. We're going to have it always. There are substances that in a broken world people are going to develop a problematic um, relationship with. And so we want to help people catch a vision of how their lives could be better um, even with that problematic use, how legalization um, could help their, all of the other kinds of drug harms that we see. Um, and we also want to help people who are in active addiction, whether it's now or whether it's at the end of the drug war, to be able to catch a vision of how their lives could be better so that they even want to be sober. Um, that's a big deal. How do, you, how do you help someone see a vision for their life of sobriety that's better than the one, you know, that they're living, even if it's kind of full of harm. People want to see and have hope for something better. And then to be able to actually have the resources and support that they need to attain that better life. So Bridget Walton is joining us today um, to share her story of her journey from long-term addiction to now long-term sobriety. Bridget, welcome. Hey. What I love about Bridget's story and why we wanted her to tell it is that it's really relatable. So the news only tells us often really sensational stories. So it can be easy to think that for the millions of Americans living every day addicted to substances, that they have to have this miraculous intervening moment in their lives for the course of their life to change at all. But when we only hear those stories, we miss the fact that also every day people all around us are slowly and often out of the limelight making the really hard changes to stop using. Sometimes in fits and starts, sometimes with relapse, sometimes um, not, but they're trying to do the work to live in long-term sobriety and are um, uh, able to do that, but we often don't get to really see those stories. So Bridget's story gives a peek into the moments of transformation through the years of her addiction that eventually led her to sobriety, and then the moments of transformation in sobriety that have helped her stay the course for over six years now. So Bridget, before we dive into your journey, tell us a little bit about your life today. Well, today I am a newlywed. I'm newly married. Um, I am the bonus mom to two boys, 11 and 13, and I'm also the proud mother to four precious small dogs. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And so uh, I, I live in a little town called Tahoma, which is outside of Clarksdale, And I'm a health and fitness coach, and so I work teaching group fitness classes, and I also do personal one-on-one training sessions and then health coaching. I 
and also work as a dance instructor at a local after-school program called GRIO in town, and I'm a student. <laughs> so I'm in school as well. You are busy. Working on a bachelor's in nutrition and dietetics. Awesome. What's the coolest experience you've had in living in a small town in Mississippi? So believe it or not, people travel from all over the world to come to Clarksdale. And at any time of the week, you can go out and meet people from anywhere, like Norway, Brazil. We have a strong influence of the blues here. And so it's just incredible that people know about this town and come here. And I guess a couple years ago, uh, with it being a small town, word travels fast. And it got around that the Black Keys and Mike Wolf from American Pickers was in town. So some friends of mine, we went out and got to hang out with Mike Wolf from American Pickers that night. And so you just don't know who you'll run into into this town. And even being someone that's from the coast, I just... I'd heard of Clarksdale, but never had a desire to come here. And so it always just blows my mind the way that this town attracts just a wide variety of people from everywhere. That's really cool. I follow you on Facebook, and it's hard to believe that the motivator and health coach that you are today is also the same woman who got expelled from high school three weeks before graduation. You were arrested by one of your high school classmates in your 20s. Um, you're later convicted on felony drug charges, such a different life from the life that you lead now. And yet what I hope people see is you're the same person, the same person all the way through. And the value of your life today is no greater than the value of your life was at those times. Uh, and we need to extend that value all the way through for people who are even making poor choices or struggling with addiction. So tell me the story of when you first uh, were introduced to substance use personally. You know, it's funny because whenever I usually think about it the first time I was um, exposed to substances, sometimes I want to think about marijuana because it's not, uh, well, I guess it's more socially acceptable now in some in some states. But when I really think back to it, it was actually, I want to say maybe seventh or eighth grade, and uh, it was alcohol. And I was with some friends of mine from school. We had taken a summer beach trip somewhere in Florida, can't quite remember, and we uh, kind of left the hotel where the grown-ups were and met some guys that were younger than us, went back to the hotel room, was playing cards and drinking, and with that being my first experience with alcohol, it was also the first time I got intoxicated. It was the first time that I got drunk, and from there, you know, later on in ninth grade is the first time that I smoked marijuana. And so those were really my, my first two encounters with substances. And what was high school like for you after that? Oh, high school was such a blur. Um, it really was. Like, I can just remember after that everything being based on like partying and the, and the people that I hung out with. I was going to a lot of raves in New Orleans, and I can really remember my only concerns during the week, not so much being school where my focuses should have been, but like the weekend and just getting to the weekend. But there was partying happening and, and substance abuse happening throughout the week as well. 
And in that time is when I also started getting in trouble with the police, like hanging out with an older crowd, you know, maybe being the youngest person at the party when the cops showed up, you know, have to call my mom to come get me. So I started seeing uh, trouble in my life then, but not really accepting that that's what was going on. And you lived on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and were a young adult when Hurricane Katrina hit. How did that impact your life and your substance use? You know, that that time was so challenging for so many. And, you know, I think back to that period of my life, and I was already in a pretty bad place as it is, as it was. But after the storm hit, you know, the, the drug use really amped up. And... It was a hard time for everyone that I was around. We were watching um, our lives that were just drastically changed. Um, so much our lives and the area where we lived, like everything was different. And it was just very hopeless. And so everything, so with that comes more drug use, more numbing. And it's so interesting because Whenever I think about my life, I can always think about it in different sections, like pre-Katrina, post-Katrina. And then after I got clean, I can think about my life as an addiction and recovery. And like that, it, 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 like that storm had such an impact on my life. It was so life-changing. It was just as life-changing as recovery has been for me. But in a negative way, in the post-Katrina Absolutely. Hmm. That's interesting because there is still this kind of lingering effect of high drug use rates on the Mississippi coast. Um, And it's just it goes back to kind of what we talk about a lot on here, which is that drug use is a is a solution attempt at other issues that are happening. So, you know, for you seeing that increase as the hopelessness in the community increases as a way of life has radically changed and a lot of people have lost a lot. And now the drug use is increasing, not just because people want to get high all the time just because it's fun, but because the, the their lives are so different and so much more challenging. And they've lost so much that the mm-hmm. desire to numb increases with that. But during that time, you also kind of had a double life, though, in some ways, because you were managing a gym and you did a good bit of volunteer work, even while this is going on post-Katrina, right? I did. And so I've always had this like weird checks and balances, I guess you could say in my head, like I deep down knew that like using wasn't good. It wasn't good for my soul. But at the same rate, I knew that giving back and it was good. And so I always felt like, oh, well, I work out and I somewhat, you know, am, am maintaining a healthy body. Yet, I'm putting substances in it or, you know, I know I'm not living right, but let's help out like these different organizations like March of Dimes or, you know, the Alzheimer's Association. So it was almost like, um, like it wasn't stroking my ego, but to stroke my conscience, like just to make my conscience somewhat feel better, like recognizing that I wasn't living right, but we'll do this. And it's all a part, too, about my insides not matching my outsides, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. So you moved to Louisiana to get a fresh start um, after a little while. Were you able to stop using drugs in that fresh start? 
I was not, um, you know, because wherever I go, there I am. And, and I am always, when, when I'm using, I attract those people. And so I didn't, I didn't really, when I moved, I never really made an attempt to change a lot of my behaviors too much. So I was still, you know, still using, um, not as, um, some substances, not as much as the other. So that kind of felt better for me. But even when you're in that lifestyle, like you attract those same people. So I was never able to really make too many changes. I felt better mentally because I wasn't looking at the destruction that I had been looking at every day. So it was a nice change of scenery. So that did help me out mentally. Just the physical but, destruction of the coast. Exactly. Yeah, the physical destruction, I did not have to see it. And so, you know, when I got there, of course, like by attracting the same people, you know, after a while, here I am, I'm arrested, I got three felony charges, I was put on drug court. And then um, after that, I mean, during drug court, I was a model drug court participant, I did everything that was asked of me, I totally white knuckled it through that program because I don't like jail and it's not for me. And I remember like during that time, you know, still having this talk with myself, like maybe if I can just stick to some of these substances over here and stay away from the harder substances, I'll be okay. Well, I graduated by on a Wednesday and by Sunday, I was doing those harder substances again. I was doing opiates again. And, um, you know, I just, I wouldn't even call, like, that That time was just me white-knuckling it through. So would you say you were in recovery for that year, or you feel like that really, I don't, the mindset was so different? What What was different from that year of being abstinent versus the recovery that you live in now? It, it was exactly that, Christina. I was just abstinent. Because it was it was not recovery at all. Because what I do today... Is, is recovery. It's multifaceted. The things that I do, I, um, I got involved in a, um, in Narcotics Anonymous. I got a sponsor. I worked steps. Um, I grew my faith with a higher power. I, I actually give back to the community where I live by doing service work and being of service to others where during that time I was not doing any of that. Like I was strictly not using. I was just strictly abstinent. It, um, nothing was changing about me. In this time, in the last six and a half years, I've put in a lot, a lot of hard work to get where I am and, and uh, soul searching and made myself uncomfortable and had to, to look at, you know, work through a lot of things where in that time I was just strictly not using. I was just trying to get through drug court. Hmm. What gave you hope during the darkest days of your addiction as you started using again and that spiraled? What was hope like? Um, you know, there was these different points of hope and different segments of my addiction. You know, I, I, I always think of my mom. Like, I know that, you know, there's been times where I was in a, a bad relationship and my mom you know, made sure that I had a car. So I always knew that I had a way out. 
um, in the darkest days towards the end of 2012. Like, there was hope in knowing that, you know, I had people on my team, like my mom and my lawyer, who were encouraging me, you know, to go to treatment, even though I didn't think I needed it at the time. And there was hope in, in ways like I have family members that I watch go through life that don't use and that don't need um, some kind of substance every day to get by. And so, which was mind-blowing to me because I'm like, wow, people do that? You know, like I just, I just didn't know that was possible. And so, like, I look at my sister or I look at my mom and I see people who go through life on a daily basis and have healthy relationships with, with other parts of their family and they sit down at dinner to eat and I'm just like, wow, I, I didn't even know that was possible. So it's, it was family members that I could see thriving in life and not just thriving, but living life on life's terms and not having to get high to get through it. Hmm. So being able to see there was a life out there mm-hmm. that you could, that other people were living that could be possible without using all of these substances. So what what helped you to go to treatment? You did eventually go to treatment. What uh, you were facing criminal charges at that point? Um, what helped tip that tipping point for you? Oh man, um, you know, 2012 was pretty rough on me. I got arrested uh, four times that year, and three of those arrests were in one month, and two of those arrests were in one week. And towards the end of that year, um, with those rests accumulating, I'd been talking to a lawyer, and my mom had even been saying, like, you need to go to treatment. With that last arrest that year, like, I knew immediately, I'm like, I'm not getting out of this this time. And so it was so funny how my lawyer sold it to me. And I don't even think she was selling it to me like this. It was just the way I heard it that day. If you don't, you need to go to treatment. So that way, when you get indicted on these felonies, you'll look good in front of the judge. Like, that's what I heard. But what she was saying is, if you don't get some help, you're going to die. And towards the end of that time, I can remember, like, being in my room by myself because that's what my addiction had come to. Like, I had one friend. I guess you could call her a friend. Yeah, she's my friend. She's actually clean today. But I had one person in my life because everyone else had just backed away from me. One person. And I can remember like being alone in my room and looking in the mirror and almost convincing myself like this is the way it'll always be. Like you will always have to have something, like whether it's alcohol, pills, you know, some kind of substance. You'll always have to have substance something to get through life. And I look back on that now and I'm like what a lie. Like, mm. what a lie. Like, it's not true at all. So what was treatment like for you? <laughs> um, it was uh, definitely different. Uh, you know, the first two weeks or so, I swear I cried so much. And I'd been through a lot that year and the the years leading up to it. And I realized getting there how much I had really numbed myself out because I'd been through a lot, but I hadn't given myself a chance to really feel what I had been through. So anytime I thought about the trouble that I'd gotten into, the pain that I'd caused 
my mom, you know, mm. I, the, just the situations. And then my, my, my dogs, like I was thinking about my dogs, I would just start crying. I mean, every time I spoke to my mom on the phone, I cried. It took me like, like two weeks or so to really get past that, um, um, those emotions because I had not felt any raw and real emotion in so long. And it was very, very overwhelming for me. So when you got out of treatment, you were still facing criminal charges uh, and you went back to court for those. What was that experience like? Oh, that was, I'll I'll have to say this. Any other time that I'd been to court prior to being clean, I was always on something or some things. And so it was always this, like, trying to get that right layering of drugs to function and, and make sure I looked okay in front of the judge. And it felt so good to go into the courtroom clean with my my little um, my little graduation from treatment and my awards that I had accumulated from group and 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 to know that hey ask me where I've been I'd love to tell you and to be bright eyed and bushy tailed and yes I can pass the drug screen and mm. to confidently look people in the eye and to look the judge in the eye and realize where every other time I'd been to court before I felt like. I was some victim of circumstance, but facing charges when you're, when I was clean, I recognized like these are consequences of my actions. Like I'm ready to face whatever comes to me because this is what I did and I deserve consequences. So you began your journey in long-term sobriety after that um, time in treatment, you went back to school. Uh, How did you feel about this new season of your life? It was um, very intimidating. You know, it was one of the goals that I had. I made this goal list when I first got clean, these 10 goals that I wanted. It was like, get my license back, go to school, you know, get a car, get my own place, things like that. And so I took the first year and a half or two of, of recovery to, like, really lay that foundation so I could then start building upon it. And that's when I added school and. But even with doing that, I had that this fear, like, what if I'm not smart enough? What if I can't do this? Like, what if I've done so much, I've, I've damaged my brain and burned up all my brain cells, mm. and, and I won't be able to do it. And so it was just, it was just fear. And it was just a lie because I went back to school and, and I just thrived. I realized you know, at that time and before, like, if I could just put as much energy as I put into my using into something positive, that something really good could come of it, if I could use my powers for good instead of evil. And so school was just, um, I really thrived in it. And and it's actually something I enjoy doing now. I love thinking on a different level and and I've done well in it. And one of the biggest barriers that people face who have a criminal justice interaction because of drugs is employment opportunities. You're very public about uh, the felony record that you have. How is it impacting you now? Well, with uh, going back to school, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day because I'm wanting, I'm going for nutrition and dietetics. And 
a friend of mine who's a lawyer, he said, you know, you might want to look into, you know, taking your licensure, becoming a registered dietitian. You need to make sure that convicted felons can do that. And I was like, oh, because there's times where I forget <laughs> like I'm a convicted felon. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I was like, you're right. I, I need to look into this. And I know there is certain barriers with possibly working in hospitals and and things of that nature. But I'm going to be honest, I just try not to let those things stop me because I've seen so many miracles worked in my life since I've been clean. Like, I'm just going to keep pursuing my goals and just see what happens and where it takes me. You've done some work in jails there locally um, and sharing your story and giving hope to other women who uh, are there. Do they find that employment is uh, difficult also? What's their response to you sharing your story? They, um, it was very interesting. I remember talking to some of the women while I was there, and they're actually in prison, and they're getting uh, their cosmetology degree. So there are or certification License, license, that's what it is. So some of them are there actually getting licenses to forward their life when they get out, which is really great that they're getting that level of rehabilitation. And so one of the girls were like, so you've got a job? You know, you, like you were able to get one and you're a convicted felon? And I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, I've got a bunch of jobs. You know, I was like, I started naming off everything that I do. I said, you know what else I have? I have a GED. I said, but I've been back to school and I've got an associate's in exercise science. I said, I was on the president's dean's list and I'm working on a bachelor's in nutrition and dietetics. I told them, don't ever let your past hold you back because you can do anything you want to do. And I told them, don't let this hold you back. Because it's important to know that we all have a past and I refuse to sit back and say, oh, I can't do this because I'm a felon, or I can't do that. Like, I'm just going to keep persevering and see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's a a great point if you kind of put together several of the points that you've made of, you know, how difficult it is, like what they're facing. So they they already are feeling uh, insecure about what can I do outside of, you know, the, the drug use maybe, if that was what it is. And, you know, the same, the feeling that you felt of, I don't know, can I do this school thing? Like, do I have what it takes in me? Do it, have I done damage to my brain? The, the insecurities about jumping in, we all have those. And, and you had some extra ones from the experiences that you had had. And then, um, kind of navigating those challenges of how do you find, you know, work that you can do, you know, the kinds of work that you've found, things that you that you love, that are, you know, you're able to do, even with um, your record and helping other people see there, there are opportunities um, to, you know, to find gainful employment, keep, keep pushing ahead, keep looking for that. So you went to your 20-year high school class reunion, uh, and you saw your classmate that had later become a police officer and had arrested you at one point. Uh, what was that interaction like? It was so great because I had actually kind of put that in the back of my mind. I didn't, I don't know, I got there and I saw him and I'm like, ooh. <laughs> I thought him was the Black CPD. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't weird for either one of us. It um, wasn't uncomfortable. And so we were just talking, me, him, and his wife, and my husband. And, and at one point he kind of leaned over to me and he said, 
I'm really glad to see that you're doing so well. And um, I, of course, was like, yeah, well, the last time that I saw Tom, we got the like, and he was like, no, you don't have to tell that story. And I'm like, no, it's fine. <laughs> I'm totally fine. You know, it was great yeah. because he he did give me, like, if that talking to, like, you don't need to be doing this and you don't need to be doing that. And obviously, I didn't listen because I got arrested two more times after that. But it was really good to see him, and I think it was good for him to see me because I think even as police officers, they see only that side of the people that they arrest. And so it was good for him to see, like, hey, I'm over here doing something better. I know mm-hmm. that happened then, but know that I'm over here recovering now. And what are ways that people can support um, people in recovery? You know, um, one of the, the ways and uh, that I I felt supported and in my community alone, and, and here's the thing with the community that I'm in, like they know why I came to Clarksville. They know I came here to get clean and that I stayed and they have absolutely embraced me, and they support me. They love me. It's, it's awesome. And so one of the things that my husband and I have talked about it several times is we love when people ask us questions. Um, like I've had a friend of mine who has a family member that's struggling with addiction, and so she's like, you know, would you talk to my sister about this? You know, or or they want to ask me questions. And so we, we love it when people want to be more educated on addiction and recovery and what that looks like. And so I think it's important that, you know, to not be afraid to ask someone questions. Um, and don't always, like, there's times where, you know, we recently had a big party in town and, like, the big to-do was, like, whether to have alcohol or not. Mm. <laughs> Everybody was like, I mean, you know, we know y'all are in recovery, and I'm like, look, you know, we're, we're not, we don't want to make this like the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. you know, we realize the majority of our friends are earth peoples, and, you know, to not treat us any different, but it's always nice to, to know that our our lifestyle is respected in that sense, mm-hmm. but um, I think just meeting people where they are is one of the ways that you can really support others in recovery. Um, you know, where I am on my journey right now, six years into recovery, is different from the person who's six months into recovery. And it's just kind of, and I think meeting people where they are in every aspect of their life is just good, solid advice for any person, um, whether you're in recovery or not. But so even during your active addiction. Yeah, so even even during those years when you were in active addiction, um, would you say that's true of that time as well, that the, the best way that people could offer you a lifeline is to say, we're going to meet you where you are? What's the best way for people to interact with? Wow, that's um, that's an interesting question because I had a – some friends of mine that I, I highly respected that in, in times of heavy using would come to me and be like, hey, girl, I'm worried about you. And I would be like, hey, I got this. And, of course, I didn't have anything. But um, they they gracefully bowed out of my life. And I needed them to do that because the people I was hanging out with were just as low down and dirty as I was, and that's who I needed to be with. I did not deserve to be 
with my good wholesome friends over here. Um, so I think it's kind of reevaluating where you are personally and making sure that you're always taking care of yourself and not letting the addict run you over mm-hmm. and run your life and tell you what to do. Um, because it's like this tough tightrope. It's like you, we don't get an instruction manual on how to do this on right. either side of it. And so you just kind of have to follow your heart and kind of turn things over and, um, and just sometimes hope for the best and pray but always protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's just a hard question to answer because I had some people that met me where I was and then I had some people that were like, I can't do this with you anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the grace of God, those people are back in my life today and we have thriving friendships. But there was a time where they kind of had to bow out and they couldn't meet you where I They tried mm-hmm. to meet you where I was, but I wasn't willing to meet them. Yeah. It's a great example of the, that's the very real challenges that families face of where, where is my family member? How can I help them? How can I not enable them, but continue to show them love? And, and there's no clear, clean cut, mm-hmm. you know, this is the step-by-step process of what you do right now and supporting families as they walk on that journey and helping them um, to feel, you know, supported and loved by, you know, their, their own friends uh, is a great gift. So thank you so much for joining us today, Bridget. This has been awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. If you want to connect with Bridget, you can find her on Facebook at Bridget Hancock Walton. When you see her beautiful purple waves, you'll know you found her. We want to share more stories here on the podcast, and you can email us yours at podcast at enditforgood.com. End It For Good exists because we want more people to have the opportunities that Bridget had to find help and fewer people with the lingering challenges like a criminal record as hurdles on the road to sobriety. So Bridget's story is uh, full of hope on this side of it. We can clearly see that, obviously, but there are thousands of families who lost their loved one before they could find uh, long-term sobriety. In Episode 3, James Moore shared his experience of losing his son to an overdose and their journey to find hope even in the midst of such devastating loss. If you haven't been with us long on the podcast, I encourage you to check out Episode 3 as well to hear another side of um, these stories, their journey to lift up their son's life and story and to provide help for others. Um, It's pretty inspiring. If you haven't shared something this week on your social media to help more people think about these issues, um, this episode with Bridget is a perfect opportunity. We didn't even really talk about anything controversial. (laughs) And this episode is going to do two things if you share it. For one, it's going to put addiction and recovery on people's minds as they scroll past uh, a post. But for some of them, it's going to give them hope as they walk uh, with their own loved one through addiction. Uh, as Bridget's family uh, tried to walk with her through the years when she was not ready to stop using. Um, We're all looking for hope and we're all looking for connection points where we feel other people uh, giving us uh, grace to say, you know what, this is an interesting thing. Um, And maybe this is something we need to be thinking about more. How can we help people have more opportunities like this and for families not to feel so alone as they walk um, that journey through Um, addiction and we hope into long-term sobriety with their loved one we are all looking for hope so how do we end our criminal approach to drugs by changing one mind at a time many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust that's you Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. 
join the movement to end it for good.